Um, This morning, we are continuing our Advent and Christmas teaching series called Home for Christmas. And the big idea is this. Christmas teaches us about the depths of God's love. Christmas teaches us that God loves us so much that he would come here to make a home with us, despite the fact that we are so hard to love. And we've been talking about, we've been wrestling with the question of what if we not only received that truth that God loves us like this, but we let that truth flow through us and we loved like that. That we not only received the truth that God loves us so much, he would come here to make a home with us who are hard to love, but what if that flowed through us and we tried our best to be powerfully present with those around us who are hard to love? But this morning, I want to shift gears a bit and just because we're so close to Christmas Day, I want to put our focus back squarely on the incarnation of Jesus. And that's really what this is talking about. The beauty, the wonder, the miracle that God has come into this world and taken on our flesh and our blood and walked and lived and died for us. One of the best ways to uncover and begin to unwrap the beauty of the incarnation is through music. I mean, you've just heard it this morning. Now, now granted, a lot of what is, what is celebrated and, and even celebrated by me as, as great Christmas music has very little to do with the actual birth and incarnation of God into our world. Um, for example, uh, um, you might think of uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas. That's one of the classic Christmas tunes of all time. Wonderful Christmas song. Has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. Has a totally separate message. A good message, but a totally separate message. The message is the power of home and family at the holidays, right? And then there are other songs that have slightly more subversive messages, like White Christmas. White Christmas says that the holidays where it's warm doesn't count quite as much. That's what White Christmas says, which is a, a bit of, of, of like climate elitism that I personally will not stand for. <laughs> and then there's the song that understandably has gotten a bad rap in we- recent weeks. It's Baby, It's Cold Outside. This has nothing to do with the incarnation of God among man. If anything, it's, a, it's like a warning. Like, watch out, weird guys at Christmas parties might try to kidnap you. That's what this song is all about. <laughs> but, but don't let these Christmas songs deter you. The vast canon of Christmas music throughout the ages is focused solely and clearly on the birth of God among us human beings as one of us. For example, in the 8.30 service this morning, we we sang a song called Of the Father's Love Begotten. That song is about 1,700 years old. It it first started out as a poem that was written about 1,700 years ago by a guy named Aurelius Prudentius. He was a Roman poet, and he wrote it as kind of an anthem for people who wanted to protect the, the true teaching of Jesus as God in fullness, yet God in flesh. Uh, Aurelius was born around 350 AD in, in the northern part of Spain. And at that particular time, the church, though young but growing very fast, was fighting against the false teaching of a very popular pastor named Arius. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Arius was promoting this idea that Jesus was of God, he was from God, he was a great teacher, a good man, a miracle worker, but he was less than God. That because he's referenced as the son, that he is somehow in substance, in power, in authority, in divinity, less than the father. 
And this false teaching caused major divisions and massive fights. And a bunch of artists, uh, like the man who wrote this poem, they gathered together and they said, what can we do to help promote the right teaching, the truth that Jesus is not just a good man or of God, but he is the man and God. And so he wrote this poem that we now know as Of the Father's Love Begotten. And then about a thousand years later, about 700 years ago, it was put to music and became the hymn, the song that so many people know and love. Of the Father's Love Begotten. Da, 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 da. Some of you know it, right? I'm not going to sing anymore. I'll spare you from that. But, but here's my question. Why fight battles over this truth? Why write poems that become celebrated songs and hymns that stand the test of time? I mean, what, what's so important about this truth that, that Jesus is not just a man of God, but he's the man and God? What, what do we lose at Christmas if we lose the truth that Jesus, born of Mary, is still the fullness of God in flesh? What do we lose if we lose that truth? Why is it worth proclaiming and singing and protecting and celebrating for thousands of years? If, if we lose this truth, I think we lose at least two things, two very important things. We lose confidence in the work of the cross, and we lose our assurance of God's love. We lose our confidence in the work of the cross, and we lose our assurance of God's love, two very big things. Jump with me to the New Testament, deep in the New Testament, to um, Matthew chapter 1. First, uh, not Matthew chapter 1, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And throughout the book, Paul is basically coaching Timothy up to take over for Paul. And it's, it's really a training manual for young ministry leaders. And in this particular section, Paul is underscoring the importance of the truth that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, born among us to live, die, and rise for us. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at the second half of verse 15, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, the church of the living God, that's us, is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we have a job to uphold a particular truth. Here's the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So the church exists to uphold the truth of the mystery of godliness. And then he's going to define mystery of godliness. He, Christ, God, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit showed up at Jesus' baptism to say, this is God's Son whom I love, with whom I'm very well pleased, and to prove Jesus' own divinity. He was seen by angels. He's been proclaimed as such among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Paul says to Timothy that part of the church job is to be a pillar for that truth to uphold the mystery of God in flesh born among us as one of us for us. Because if we lose this truth, we lose the confidence of the cross. We lose the confidence that we have in knowing that the cross paid for the sins, the injustices, the evils, and the wrongs of all mankind for all time. Because only God in flesh could satisfy God's demand for justice. You can't pay it. I can't pay it. We couldn't get together and figure out how to pay it. We can't do it. 
When I was in seventh grade, I took a class called Life's Essentials. I think it used to be called Home Ec. When I took it, it was called Life's Essentials. And Life's Essentials, apparently, were learning how to make a football and sew it. A football, football pillow. You ever make the, make the football pillow? And then how to use an oven and bake a horrible chocolate cake. And then how to balance a checkbook. And I remember in seventh grade sitting there learning what a check was, what it meant to write a check. And it blew my seventh grade mind that you could write on a piece of paper that was not money and you could give it to somebody else and they would give you the thing you wanted, again, without giving them any money. This to me was like the secret to all success. And I went home that day and I wanted to make sure my mom knew how this thing worked. Because maybe one of the reasons I didn't have a Nintendo at the time is because she hadn't figured this out. And so I went home and told her about this, and she taught me a very important question. She said, Matt, the question you have to ask is this. Do you have what it takes to cover the check? Can you cover in your own account what you are writing? And she said, if you can't, you don't write the check or you write next week's date on top of the check. <laughs> That's how it works. Jesus Christ is God in flesh, living our life and dying our death, because if we try to cut that check, it won't clear. It will bounce. Or in today's parlance, since most of us, many of us, don't write checks anymore, you will initiate overdraft protection in your debit account. <laughs> because you don't have enough to cover it. I don't, but Christ does, because he's God in flesh. Or think of it like this. Um, let's say you and a bunch of friends, when you, when you, when maybe you when you were younger, you went out to a club with, with Beyonce. So you, your friends, and Beyonce, like the most fabulous and richest person in the world, okay? And you go out to the most expensive club in downtown Houston, and you spend a, a long night partying. You rack up this huge bar tab, and at like 2 a.m., the, the waiter comes over to your table in the cool section and says, all right, separate checks, and you and your friends, you all look at each other like, oh no. Because you know that not only could you, any one of you not cover the whole tab, but you probably can't even pay for your own tab. And your only hope is to lean upon the person in the group who you think can cover it for everybody. And it's only, until the, it's only at the moment where Beyonce pulls out her gold card or whatever she's got, she pulls out her gold card and puts it on the table that everybody breathes a sigh of relief. Because you know Beyonce's got enough money to cover the bill. You don't know how much it is, but you know it's more than you and more than enough. That is what we're talking about. You and I have racked up such a massive amount of debt that our only hope is to lean on someone who we know has more than us, who we know has more than enough. We don't know how much power and mercy and might and glory God has, but we know that it's more than we do. It's more than enough to cover our cost, and he is giving it to us. And if Jesus Christ is anything less than God in flesh, then we lose our confidence in the cross and its ability to pay for everything. Now, this is important because if you haven't already, at some point in your life, you are going to do something so stupid that it, won't, it might very well make you wonder whether or not God can forgive it. At any given moment, your worst sin may still very well be in front of you. And any given moment, your most dysfunctional decision may still very well be in front of you. And at that particular moment, you may very well wonder whether or not you have exhausted God's ability to forgive. And as a pastor, I've had people ask me that question. 
In fact, not too long ago, I had a young man who was caught in this like perpetual cycle of like truly dysfunctional and dark stuff say to me, after he'd come to me for assurance of his forgiveness for like the 50th time, say to me, Pastor, haven't I yet exhausted like God's ability to forgive? Is he not like out of mercy? Is he not sick of me? Have, have I dug a hole so deep that it can no longer be filled? And in reference to that metaphorical hole, I looked at him and said, well, it depends. If you're filling it, you're, you're toast. If I'm filling it, there's no hope. But if God is filling it, you're fine. The reality of Jesus Christ being God in flesh means that you cannot drain the cross. You, you cannot drain the cross of its power. You cannot drain the cross of its mercy. There is always enough mercy for you because the man on the cross is God in flesh for you. That's what it means. I got another verse for you. We're going to go a little deeper in the New Testament. This is 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, this is a verse worth, worth memorizing. Um, 1 John 4, 10 says this. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's a fancy theological word for satisfying payment, the satisfying payment for our sins. Uh, this is the Christian definition of love in its truest and most potent form. And yet even this definition loses its loveliness if Jesus is less than God in flesh. Because if Jesus is less than God in flesh, we lose the assurance we have of God's love for us. Uh, I'm going to get philosophical just for a moment. Um, you could argue that love is made up of two things. It is made up of both emotion and action. Uh, another way to put it is that love is comprised of feeling and doing. And if in any relationship you lack one of those two things you will begin to doubt whether there is love in that relationship because love is made up of both feeling and doing, of both emotion and action. And we experience this most often in the context of, say, romantic relationships. For example, you can say that you love your spouse all day long, but if there's no pursuit, if there's no date nights, if there's no gifts, if there's no tiny acts of compassion, kindness, and thoughtfulness, if there's no doing, you can have all the feeling you want, but eventually your spouse will begin to wonder, does he really, does, does he really love me? Because love is comprised of both feeling and doing. Yes, yeah, some of you are tracking with me, good. On the flip side, you can fill the calendar with all kinds of fun. You can give extravagant gifts. You can put a ring on the finger. You can be the funnest, most thoughtful person in the world to be in a relationship with. But if you, if you don't smile when she enters a room, if you, if you don't have the ability to like laugh at his dumb jokes, if you can't articulate with genuine overflow of emotion, the fact that you actually care about this person. You can have all the doing in the world, but if there's no feeling, they will start to doubt the loving. And understandably so, because it's not just about feeling, it's about doing. And it's not just about doing, it's about 
feeling. Now, here's why this is important for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What is the birth of God into our world other than the greatest example of feeling and doing, proving love that has ever been given? That God, out of his overflow of concern and care for us, refuses to sit back, but enters into our life and our world and our flesh and our blood to fix and to heal and to help and to be with us. God is so concerned about your well-being. He is so concerned about your wholeness and your holiness that he could not simply let your sinfulness and this world's craziness go without a response. And he's so gracious, he knew that he couldn't demand that response from you. So instead, he, he inserts himself into our world. His love for us, his emotion for us overflows into unprecedented, unparalleled, unthinkable action for us. He's born as one of us. If we lose the truth that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, we lose the incredible assurance of God's love that we get. He loves you. Listen to his words and how he feels about you and then look at the life and the birth and the death of Jesus and consider what he's done for you. He has feelings for you. And look at the things he has done for you. Should there ever be doubt of his love in you? No. Now, now, now this... This, this truth of the incarnation and the confidence of, of the cross that it gives us and the assurance of God's love that it gives us transforms many things for us. But I want to pl- apply it to just one particular thing this morning. I think in particular, the incarnation of Jesus Christ has the ability to transform your waiting. W-A-I-T-I-N-G, your waiting. And life is full of Waiting. God's people were waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah, the Savior, to show up. God's people are still waiting for the Messiah, the Savior, to return. Your life is full of big things you're waiting for, small things you're waiting for. Kids are waiting for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and they can barely stand it. We're all between one thing and the next thing. Maybe you're between sickness and health. You're between singleness and marriage. You're between the job you have and the job you want. We're all waiting for something. We're all in between something. What are you waiting for? And what the incarnation of Jesus Christ gives us is confidence in our waiting that God is powerful and God loves us, that we are are secure in his family, that we are covered in his favor. And so whatever is unfinished for you, whatever is uncertain for you, whatever is scary for you, there are a couple things that don't have to be doubted by you in the middle of that, in the middle of your waiting. You don't have to wonder whether or not God loves you because look at how he feels about you and what he's done for you. And you don't have to wonder about whether or not you're forgiven or you've made him mad or somehow you screwed up and this is some kind of karmic punishment, this period of waiting. No, that's not how God works. You've been forgiven completely on the cross because God himself died and you are loved beyond measure because God himself has come. And that can give you confidence in the middle of all this uncertainty and all of this waiting. So now you can wait with a bit of peace and perhaps some purpose. 
You can use the free time that you now have because you're not having to ask the questions, does God love me? Is God mad at me? Is everything going to be okay for me in the very end? The answer to that is, yes, he loves you. No, he's not mad at you. And yes, it's going to be okay in the end. Now you can use your time to answer different questions. Questions like this. What might God trying to be teach me, trying to be teaching me in this season of waiting? What is he teaching me in this season of waiting? Here's another question. What good might God be trying to do through me in this season of waiting? See, now you've got, you've got the spare room to wrestle with those questions. You can, you can, because of the confidence of the arrival of Jesus Christ, you can use your season of waiting for growth and for good. Because you know God's got your back and you know you're covered in love. You know that if it's bad today and terrible tomorrow, it will still be great in the end because Jesus has secured your place in his family. He will show his goodness to you. He's proven his love to you. So now you can wait with peace and with purpose. I'll close with this. Our, our gospel reading this morning was from was from John chapter 6, where Jesus is, is confronting uh, the group that is following after him because they're following after, following after him purely for like earthly blessing. And understandably so. Jesus has like performed these miracles. He has, um, he has uh, um, you know, uh, produced a whole bunch of bread and, and uh, proved that he's got all this power. And people are chasing after him for earthly blessing and temporary blessing. And so Jesus just kind of pauses and looks at them and he says, I want you to figure out, I want you to discern the fact that I can give you so much more than bread. I can give you so much more than temporary blessing. I can give you so much more than just earthly stuff. He, he puts it like this. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus says this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And the context here means this. To believe in him whom he sent is to understand, comprehend, that the one he has sent is God himself, God in flesh, who can give you peace beyond measure, confidence of God's love, a place in eternity, assurance that it's going to be okay, a taste of the kingdom in a world of chaos. He can give you those things because he's God in flesh. Because he is God in flesh, we have confidence in the cross. Because he is God in flesh, we have assurance of his love. Because he's God in flesh, that transforms everything, even our waiting. That's worth celebrating. That's worth singing about, maybe writing a poem about. That's worth throwing parties about. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.